Welcome to The Lisa Show. How many choices do you just make on autopilot in a day, do you Most. think? Most. Yeah. Honestly. And when you have a really big decision to make, how do you determine it's going to be a big decision? You know, like, how often do you think you underestimate the different choices that you make? How often do I underestimate? I think I always overestimate. Like, I, I panic. Then I think it's the biggest decision and like uh, Sliding Doors, that movie from years ago, I feel like if I make the wrong choice, it's going to directly impact the <laughs> complete trajectory of my entire life. Well, when it comes to making decisions, how do the stakes impact our decision or our options, really? And how do you overcome the fear of high stakes options mm. so that you make you know better choices and you don't avoid them, right? Well, knowing that we all make a million decisions every day and that there are some bigger, higher stake decisions way on our minds, how do you approach it and is it the best way? Well, we're joined today by Patrick McGinnis, international venture capitalist and author um, and creator of the term FOMO, Fear of Missing Out, to help us maneuver through life's most stressful choices. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, how are you? Good. So this is something that is universal, right? We all make these choices and we're trying to like, I, I need to, you know, make more rational choices or I need to make choices. I always tell myself after I've had a good night's sleep, <laughs> sometimes I can work myself up and think, oh, I'm not in the best situation to make a good decision right now. Um, and I'm wondering why it is that some choices are so much harder than others. What have you observed? You know, it's really interesting what you've said about getting uh, a good night's sleep before making a decision, because what we see nowadays in, in, in the work that I've done yeah. uh, is that we are overwhelmed with options for even the most mundane things in life. So just think about like, you know, when you go on Amazon and you want to buy a salad spinner, there's like 93 options, right? Right. And, so and I feel like I need to, <laughs> you know, find the best price and then read all the reviews. Yeah. Exactly. So we're, you know, in the old days, like, go, let's go back pre-internet or, you know, to simpler times, okay. people had to make decisions, you know, big, important life decisions they would make about who they married. But even those things, it's like, you know, you probably lived in a small town. There were, you know, seven people you could choose from. You did it these <laughs> days because of the internet. Oh. We're constantly overwhelmed. And the little things and the big things start to mix together when we make decisions. Yeah. Okay. So then kind of along the similar lines, what, how do you determine that line between a decision that's high stakes and low stakes? Because I think sometimes we get it wrong. Yeah. So this is, listen, it's a personal equation, right? To some degree, like, you know, for example, I, I so I classify decision-making into three tiers, high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes. Okay. No stakes decisions are things we won't remember having decided in a couple of days. High stakes is probably about a month, and there is some, you know, some sort of financial impact and life impact. And then the high stakes are the ones that truly matter that will have long-term implications for our health and our wealth, right? Okay. But the thing is, for me, a low stakes or no stakes, for example, no stakes decision for me, like, am I having, you know, the salad or the soup for lunch? Yeah. You know, that, that, that's fine. For, if somebody's on a diet or they have, you know, some sort of, like, food restrictions, that won't be a, 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 no, a no stakes for them. So what mm -hmm. I do is classify them based on the impact, and then based on that, I can then decide how I'm going to actually tackle the process Okay, so that kind of helps the categorization. But I think that for a lot of us, what trips us up is, well, I want to make a smart decision, but I'm waiting because I don't have all of the information. So and sometimes decisions just need to be made when you don't have all of the information. How do you approach decision making in that circumstance? Yeah, well, the first thing to do is there's an important thing to keep in mind that if you just know this simple fact, it will really help. The reality is that like, we can never have perfect information. That's right. just, that's just, we cannot read the future. Mm -hmm. But it, it, there is a, a really interesting concept called maximizers and satisficers, which was invented by, uh, you know, some clinical psychologists and written about by Barry Schwartz in his book, The Paradox of Choice. And what it says is that maximizers are the people who do all the research. They do tons of research. And in the end, they actually make better decisions than the satisficers who are like, that's oh, good enough. Hmm. But ironically, maximizers are less happy with their decision, even though they've made a technically better decision, because they spend so much time thinking about the road that they didn't take, that they feel regret. Mm. So even if you're doing perfect research for millions of years, you actually won't be happier with your decision. You won't be happier. Wow. Right. Okay. That, that's kind of a game changer when we approach decision right? making. Yeah. Because the assumption is the opposite, I think, for a lot of us. It really is. And so what I tell people is, listen. 
you know, that's not number one. Number two is we often assume that the more research we have, the more options we'll have or their options will stay mm-hmm. the same. Yep. But as we delay decision making, in fact, we may lose options things disappear. And so when you have acceptable options in front of you, reckon, be thankful that you have them and then move towards a decision. And that may involve, you know, I have a, a number of solutions that I, that I advocate, but one of those things is engaging other people to help you think through. I outsource a lot of my decision making uh-huh. to people in my life who I know are subject matter experts on things. We're we're visiting with Patrick McGinnis, and we're talking about stakes and decision-making, and I love this conversation. One thing that I think that we we don't speak into these kind of um, conversations very often is that we talk about making a decision, right? Okay, you're going to take a job or not take the job, and and that's the decision, right? And then we don't sort of walk out beyond that. One of the things that I've been most impressed about as I've been listening to a podcast recently Mm -hmm. is, you know, the the, uh, host has said, well, so you make a decision. And then if you don't like that decision that you've made, you can make another decision. But so often when we talk about decisions, we don't think that there can be further or other decisions that exist. We think and set so much on this particular decision that that we sort of void out what what is likely to happen, that we will make other decisions after this one decision. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And this is like on my podcast, Fomo Sapiens, I interview leaders and and sort of celebrity types about the important decisions they've made and what we always talk about is that like each decision is like a door you walk through that door and you know what's on the other side another door doors and so if you never make a decision you rob yourself of the opportunity to make the next decision and the next one after that and that's what life is about right yes but i do want to push back just a little bit because a a lot of people are so fearful of making decisions because uh they're so high stakes like you know choosing someone to marry or you know whether to have a kid or you know kind of at what time that those kinds of decisions that are that 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 I think for a lot of people have so much fear around them. How how do you what have you found out about decision making that make those decisions a little bit easier to make? Yeah, so I think what happens in these particular scenarios, and listen, we all have these feelings. This yeah. is the human experience, is that we spend so much time stewing on the decision that we end up creating an entirely sort of fictional narrative in our head around mm. the, the, the I, I remember as a kid I couldn't sleep at night and my dad said to me why can't you sleep I was crying and I said because I'm afraid there's gonna be a fire and he said well how would there be a fire and I said well <laughs> maybe a mouse would push over the television and then I realized that was ridiculous and started laughing and went to bed oh. same with these things we've got to go out and experience life so for example yeah. if you're thinking about moving to a new city yeah you know go and spend a couple weeks there demystify the fear with facts replace mm-hmm. the fear with facts and you'll be in a better spot to make a decision and at some point you have to realize if you've been dating somebody for 10 years and you're still fearful this is there's not a data problem here you know the person the problem is that you have created in your in your head all these scenarios that probably won't even come true that are trapping you in indecision I've shared it before so on the on the show, but wow. in, in my uh, first marriage, I was absolutely paralyzed. I was a little bit older, getting married, and I and you know, marriage is a huge, serious decision, and I couldn't mm. figure out as to whether or not I should do this. And my older brother uh, took took me aside and he said, "Listen, I would never advocate for this necessarily, but if you get married and it's not what you think, not what you like, and doesn't serve you well, you can make the choice to get divorced and not be in that situation anymore." And, and for whatever reason, just knowing that. There could be other choices beyond that particular choice allowed me the freedom to step into marriage. Yeah, that's very powerful. And, you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind is when you're creating these stresses, like going to somebody you trust can really help. Also, you know, meditation, mindfulness, prayer, all of these things where you clear the mind of the noise and focus on the reality that's around you and sort of pull yourself out of that narrative that you created in your head. All of those things, just like going and taking a nap, when you come out of that, you are in a better place to make sensible decisions. Yeah. I, I I feel like this is, you know, it's really interesting. A, a little bit earlier, um, you revealed, you know, one of your patterns of making decisions that I that I want to talk a, a little bit more about how sometimes you outsource your decision making to other, you know, your trusted experts. And I realize, you know, something kind of dinged in my brain like, oh, I think I do that, too. You know, I ask about, you know, certain job decisions. I ask a group of friends certain medical decisions. I ask, you know, mm-hmm. a certain a certain group and, and um, parenting. There's there's another group. Um, how have you cultivated those that that kind of uh, decision making team throughout your life, and 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 how do you suggest others do that as well? It's a wonderful thing to do because you know at the end of the day, all of us in our lives have people who are subject matter experts or are passionate about things, and we all have things that we can bring to the table as well. So I think the first step is you yourself 
you know, offer to help other people and cultivate that kind of sense of, you know, giving in your relationships with other people. Because when you do that, of course, other people are obviously much more willing to help. The second thing is, you know, recognize the areas where you spending tons of time just doesn't, you're not going to get you to the right, that right sort of answer. For example, I don't like picking my clothing. I'm just like, okay. you know, if I pick my clothing, I would look like a schlub. <laughs> I have a friend who, who works in a fashion company. She's very knowledgeable. She understands. So maybe, you know, push me a little outside of the lines a little bit. I call her twice a year. I say, can you please help me? And then the third part of that is, you know, so recognizing those experts in your life, maybe that person who loves restaurants, you know, where should I go to dinner? And then the third thing is being willing to trust the person. So, you know, when my friend Vanessa chooses out a sweater that I'm like, well, I don't know about that. Then I have to say, you know what, Vanessa, I've asked you to do this. I trust you. I'm going to go for it. And in the end, you know, what happens is we end up learning and growing and trying things we might not have done otherwise. And it makes us more interesting people. You know, it Patrick, does. before yeah. we let you go, I need to ask you about this, because in the introduction, we we introduced you as the creator of the term FOMO. I need to know I the know. story behind this. Did you, in fact, this term that we that we use so much, come up with it? I did. So 20-ish years ago, I was a first-year student at Harvard Business School. I had arrived on campus after having just witnessed 9-11 in New York. And Ooh. so I was very much in the mindset of, I have to live life at 110%. And for me, that meant trying to do everything. And I started to realize that, you know, even though I had this very exciting set of options and things I could do, I was stressed out because I was trying to do everything all the time. And I realized that it was very much the culture of our school and that everybody was running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And so I decided to start sort of name that. Um, and I started calling it FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. And I wrote an article in the school newspaper. No way. May 10th, 2004. That's first amazing. time ever used in the world. Yeah. So it's, you know, now it's in the dictionary. So um, well done. Well done. That's amazing. <laughs> I also, uh, uh, because I love names of things and we sort of glanced over it as well. The name of Patrick's podcast is FOMO Sapiens, which no, I, it's I, amazing. It's brilliant. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Uh, Patrick, if people want to find you beyond your podcast, where can they find you? So you can go to FOMOSapiens.com or you can go to PatrickMcGinnis.com and there you'll find even a quiz about how much FOMO you have. So go check it out and uh, engage. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you. Life moves really fast, and with stresses of work and kids going through school and unexpected emergencies that always seem to pop up sooner than later, we may reach a ripe old age and realize that we have nothing really planned for, quote unquote, the rest of our lives. On average, people are living longer. So how do you find the time in your busy life to really plan for the future and so that when you get to that retirement age and kids are gone and you seem to have more extra time, what, what can you do to set up your life so that it is one that you can really enjoy? Well, today we want to talk with Barbara Ballinger and Meg Cr- authors of the book, Not Dead Yet, about what we can do now to enjoy life later. Welcome, Meg and Barbara. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you for, for having, having us. us. So, Barbara, I want to start with you. What, what do you think is the reason why most people are really unprepared for enjoying the rest of their lives as fully as they could? I think a lot of people don't want to think ahead. Either they're afraid about their mortality or they're so busy dealing with, uh, we used to call it when we were writing a lot about family business, sort of putting out the fires of what's happening daily, so not planning ahead. I mean, we are both lucky that we still work and we like our work, but we do other activities too. So we have a lot to fill our time. You know, Meg, we hear a lot about the idea of living in the moment, right, so much that I think maybe it's lost a lot of its meaning. What does it really mean to live in the moment? It means to be present and grateful for what you have. Sit down and make a list of all the things that are good in your life and live your life with optimism. Um, Habits, uh, we all have habits, and we want to learn new things, but it can often take weeks and months to learn some of these things. Barb, you want to read part of what we have in our book? We, We quote a writer, Philippa Lawley, and she says that it um, takes, on average, it's said to take more than two months before a new behavior comes 
becomes automatic, 66 days to be exact. And she wrote this in a, a published in a European journal of social psychology. And even uh, what's good news is that making a mistake once or twice has no measurable impact on long-term goals. So oh, that's great another, news. As another authority. So you start something, you don't like it, you can stop. You, you, you make a mistake, almost who cares? Keep going. Don't, don't get discouraged. Uh, may I add that it's important to live your life with optimism. Stop worrying about the small stuff. As we said earlier, zero in on assets, not deficits. Um, start to notice the world around you more. Smell the roses. You've heard that phrase. Sure. Mm-hmm. Be spontaneous. Get enough sleep. Uh, maybe find some new friends, a new romance, have sex, and cook a new, be in cook co- a new dish for your new romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, combined all of it together. So, so often we talk, we talk about this, I, and I, I would ask this question of the both of you, so we'll start with Barbara, but uh, when we think about this, we sort of think, well, the, these are the list of things that I want to do before I pass on, right? We call it a bucket list or a to-do list yeah. or whatever those things are, and, and we sort of take the spirit and attitude of, I'm not dead yet, yeah. I can do these things. Do, <laughs> do you guys uh, embrace that attitude and that, that uh, function of a bucket list, or, or do you say something completely different? from that um i i do in some ways i mean there are things i like to do i don't know if it's uh such a hard and fast list but there are things i think about before covid when travel was more possible i used to think about i have my list of places i'd like to go and it was more that gee i'm this age and what's the likelihood of because i still work that maybe one big trip a year and these are the places in the pecking order and i've had that list and i've moved them around as interests have changed uh but i don't think i have a lot of other bucket lists i don't know do you have any bucket lists meg i do one of the things that i would love to do before i leave this earth is affect change in children one child at a time. I love my work with underprivileged kids. I tutor, I mentor. And my other goal would be to uh, become a better digital photographer. I just started getting into that. I did a long time ago, and I love having the camera around my neck, walking the streets of New York City. It's a great way to meet people, too. I bet. If you're just jumping in on the conversation, we're talking with Barbara Ballinger and Margaret Crane, who are journalists, authors of Not Dead Yet, Rebooting Your Life After 50, about how you can live in the moment, what you should do to sort of start planning now to live the life that you want in the future while still just living in the moment. So I I really like how our conversation has morphed into just more of a life philosophy and your emphasis on on focusing on on the things that you can control with optimism. Mm -hmm. And and I'm wondering um, and let me ask you, Barbara, first, how, how do you decide whether something is worth doing right now, you know, in the moment? with that sort of spontaneity, and and what things that you save for later? Well, I I used to paint a long time ago when I was in college, and then I sort of put it on the shelf because of my career and work. And I started back about 10 years ago. And where I live, uh, there's a wonderful teacher in a class. So I do go, I try to go once a week, and I also try, I've done a few retreats with different teachers. Mm. So that's something I want to do now because I want to get better and I want to have the regularity of painting once a week or, you know, sort of like sure. getting back on the bicycle. And then periodically I'll read something and decide during the pandemic, my two daughters were baking a lot and they were doing things like challah and donuts and things mm. that I might not have done. So that was something I did then. I'm not doing it so much now. I mean, it was fun to try it and then put it put it away for a while. So I think it's more of what I read about, what I hear friends doing. And and Meg, uh, when you try to decide, you know, what are those things that okay now is the moment, and the other things, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of put it off. How do you what, how do you make that decision? Well, let's face it, we're not getting younger. And one of the things that I absolutely do not like is exercising. I do walk, and Mm -hmm. I'm a fast walker because I move quickly. But I tried Pilates, and the best thing I can say about Pilates is I didn't hate it. But it is healthy. (laughs) It is is important to strengthen the core, 
And once it's safe to go into the Pilates place again, I will probably take that up again. Uh, housing. We talk in our book, Barbara, remember the housing situation. People don't realize when they look ahead that looking ahead is now. We are right. there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> it's really harder to get rid of all those belongings, decide, you know, your donate, sell, give away. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving becomes much harder, you know, settling in a new place, making friends. So it's really better to do it now while you're healthy than think, okay, I'll think about it next year or the year after in five years. Well, that's a good point. Very I, good point. I, yeah. I would be curious in, mm-hmm. in all this, it's, you've, you've mentioned the word reboot several times, yeah. right? It's a time to reboot. And, and when I think about that, I think of a computer, right? That we turn it off and that we turn it on. <laughs> I, I, and, and then those systems have to kind of recheck themselves and, and begin to, to reconfigure uh, it. And then we're able to function just as we did before, but, but maybe with an update or maybe with a different perspective. Walk that out for me a little bit more in the, in the reboot. I think you've started to do that. But, but what other things as we're rebooting after 50 that we look to the the later years of our life should we be doing that we aren't whether it's just because it's uncomfortable or we don't know what does that reboot look well, like Barbara? Um, i think yes. I'll, I'll mention two things and quickly uh one thing we both moved in recent years i mean mine was longer ago it was 10 years ago and i gave meg the advice when she moved more recently i said here's a reboot you're moving to a new place And if you don't like it, it doesn't have to be permanent. Whether you buy or rent, you can do it again. Yes, it's a pain in the neck and it's expensive, but don't think, you know, give yourself enough time. Give yourself a year or two. And, I mean, I remember walking around my new community thinking, well, what the hell have I done? But, I mean, I I did come to love it. I loved it initially, and then I wondered. The other thing is with healthy habits. Mm -hmm. We both like Mm -hmm. to eat. We like some junk food. And, you know, it's sort of like now is the time. We don't have to be perfect, but let's reboot our, some of our and get rid of some of those bad habits. That's easier said than done, though, right? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> no, and, yes, and I think it's good that you t- that you bring up sort of the your your environment uh, of thinking about where you're going to live as well as as your how to stay active and physically capable as you move forward because we all know that you need to think about that before you need to be worried about it. I'm also Mm -hmm. curious about the kind of activities and sort of schedule that you plan for yourself when you look forward. Um, Living in a busy time um, and and having so many different options available to us, how do you plan forward to the future without like having it be sort of overwhelming as to, well, I don't know what I'm going to do and, and how I'm going to set that up. So I guess my question is a little bit more philosoph- uh, philosophical in, in nature of, of how do you plan for a future, uh, not knowing maybe the details, but knowing that you want to stay, you know, socially active? Well, we keep making, we're, we're good at keeping up with our existing and older friends and also making new friends, and which we do pretty much through being open to situations. I made a good friend in my area, a couple at a dinner party. I made friends just getting a pedicure by sitting and talking to the person next. Not all work out. Sure. Or sometimes they work out for a little bit. Um, I just think, I think we've become flexible about having a schedule and then tweaking and adjusting it. I have a new grandchild that requires driving to that daughter's home, which is two hours away and back. And right now I'm committed to trying to see the baby once a week and bring food. That won't last forever. But it, but it will last for a long enough while those cute little cheeks are worth driving two hours for. Yeah. <laughs> right. And right. as long as I feel the parents mm-hmm. need that extra hello, how are you, whatever. It's such a heavy conversation for so many people and difficult and difficult to grasp. Even though we all know we're going to do it, we get old, literally by the minute and then the day, and then we extrapolate it out into the years. From the perspective that you, uh, the two of you are at, share, share with us, I don't know, maybe that, that, wit, that wisdom that only comes from having the experience to be where you are and look back. Maybe inspire, you know, one of you mentioned that you want to be able to teach the children and, and be able to help them, you know, to affect change in their mm-hmm. life. And maybe, that, maybe this would be that opportunity. Tell, tell us, young folks, what, what we need to be doing different. Well, this is Meg. More time now to do, to go, to sort of pursue our passions, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And 
we're only going to be able to do that if we stay in good shape, if we do everything we can to, you know, sort of make sure that we move and think, exercise our brain. Um, there are so many things we can start doing at our advanced ages and things we shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, I don't think if you've never been a skier, you should get on a pair of skis or go ice skating because you could break a bone. If you've done it all your life, then it's fine to continue. Um, I think the sky's the limit within reach, and that even includes maybe skydiving as well because we know people <laughs> have tried that. Um, it's, it's a time to experiment and really enjoy the time we have left as our clocks are, sort of are winding down. There are so many things to choose from, so many, and it's a great yeah. time, I, 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 and we're smarter. Yeah, I think if I could interrupt, we have an article in the beginning under, uh, a, uh, we call them age defiers. We call ourselves age defiers. We have examples of people who have been role models for us and lived a life or living a life that we think mm -hmm. is noteworthy for different ways. And they provide a lot of inspiration. Yeah. You know, as we're looking ahead, Barbara, I would be curious to get your perspective on retirement and retirement age, knowing that people are living longer and, um, you know, have have different, you know, interests that may be part of a, a career and, and may not. What What's your perspective on on when a good time to retire should be, all things considered? Well, I think when you're when we write about this in the book, I think when your work mm -hmm. doesn't excite you or when uh, you dread going to the office, you hate your boss or whatever. Um, for us, we still like our work, you know, maybe not every excite, uh, assignment, but there's enough of it that we love. We like writing books together. We, we're fortunate we like working together. We write a weekly blog, Lifeless Lessons at 50.plus, which arrives in an inbox Friday if you sign up weekly. Uh, so for us, I don't plan on retiring. I don't see any need to. I could mm -hmm. see scaling back and not taking every oh, assignment that yeah, comes sure. my way. Mm-hmm. And, and Meg, what is your perspective on that? No, I agree with Barbara. Um, I think you consider retirement, as Barbara said, when, you know, you're starting to feel burned out. But, again, you need to have something to retire to. And interestingly enough, um, people move around in their jobs today. Mm -hmm. In our book, we profile people who are in a second and third career. Um, one woman was in PR, and now she's a stand-up comedian. Who else did we profile, Barbara? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, my uh, friend of mine who I met through Pilates, who gave up her consulting job, and she was a headhunter, and she's now a Pilates teacher. She doesn't yeah. do it full-time, but she does it often enough. You know, I think it's that joy factor. It's like when Marie Kondo talks about only keeping possessions in your house. We talk in our book about tidying up your lives as well. If it doesn't give you joy, why are you doing it? Maybe you had to once do it to pay the rent or whatever, or put a, you know, food on the table. But at this stage, hopefully you've planned and your finances in order. And that's something we talk about, talking with a financial expert to see, are your finances in order so yeah. you can retire? Good point. Also, you're at a stage where you don't have a boss telling you what to do. You're really beholden to yourself, pretty much, mm -hmm. um, assuming you're in decent shape. And um, it's not school. You know, if you want to read a book, uh, you don't like it, toss it aside and start a new book. You're not being <laughs> tested on it. It's very freeing, this part of our yeah. lives, don't you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, listen, yeah. If, I, if I could do it, I would do it right now, but I'm just going to have to start to be a little bit more intentional as I look toward that time. And we have, right. en we have enjoyed being able to have uh, both Barbara Bollinger as well as Meg Crane, journalists and authors of the book Not Dead Yet, Rebooting Your Life After 50. If you want to learn more from them, uh, and like they said, mention, uh, get that email on the weekly, you can go to lifelessons at 50plus.com. Ladies, thanks for being on the show. Think about that one person you just can't get along with. I'm sure 
sometimes it can be family. Sometimes it can be a friend. Maybe it's a coworker, somebody that you have tried to see eye to eye with, but it is a little bit more difficult in practice than maybe you're used to or than it's intended. And maybe it's because they have a different view of the world, or maybe it's because they did or said something that you just can't really let go of. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that this is a universal human experience for whatever reason we have these kinds of conflicts. So when knowing that this is just part of life and something that we're all going to experience, how do you deal with that person? You know, uh, what's really popular, unfortunately, right now is for people to cut, you know, people out of their lives or I just won't associate with anyone who thinks this or I won't be around anyone who would ever do that or whatever. And, and of course, there are extreme circumstances where you do need to protect yourself and your family. But the attitude that we have when we find conflict with someone else is something worth talking about in this realm, whether it's personal or professional. So I want to invite into this conversation Dr. Chad Ford, who's an associate professor of intercultural peace building at BYU Hawaii, author of the book Dangerous Love, and has been through this kind of conflict. And um, we're really curious about this intercultural peace building, what it means and what it can teach us about human nature and resolving this kind of discord. Thank you for your time, Dr. Ford. Aloha. Thanks uh, for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your time and are very curious about specifically what intercultural peace building is and, and, and what is your association with it? Yeah, so it's a program that we started here at BYU-Hawaii uh, really around 15 years ago. And, you know, part of that is, is based off the mission of this university, which is really about bringing young people together from around the world. We have at any time 3,000 students from, from 80 countries. Wow. And thinking about what it, what it means to not just tolerate each other, but to actually collaboratively solve problems together and build, build peace. And, you know, for me, building peace is, is more than, like I said, just, just having a tolerance for someone that we disagree with, but it's actively engaging them and finding ways to collaboratively solve problems that are difficult to so- solve. And I think it's a very it's a very challenging task. I think most of us aren't really trained on how what we're supposed to do when uh, we're in conflict with other people. Absolutely. I think most of us are afraid of conflict mm-hmm. and are afraid of what's going to happen to us and our relationship. Uh, if someone disagrees with us, if, if we have different views on, on topics, or if we're just struggling to get along. And, and so, you know, really my work for the last 20 years has been both as a, a professor and a, as a conflict mediator in helping people walk through that journey. And, and, and for me, there's a lot of hope, uh, it, it, regardless of the conflict that people are facing, whether that's, you know, interpersonal conflict at home or, or in our communities or even internationally, there are proven techniques that we can apply uh, to allow us to not only get through that, that conflict, but to actually improve our relationships and allow us to thrive together. Well, everyone wants that. And so when you say, hey, we are, you know, no big deal, just solving problems together and building peace. I just think, (laughs) well, how are you doing that? How do you do that? Well, you know, actually, believe it or not, the first thing that that you really have to do is overcome our fear of conflict. And and I find that most of the time that is the biggest barrier to start it, because once, once we're afraid of of either a person that we're in conflict with or just conflict in general, our, our brains sort of shut down. It's, we activate this fight or flight, um, very natural reaction to fear. Uh, but when we're doing it towards other people, it has a really negative effect. It shuts down the creative part of our brain. It shuts down that part of our brain, that brain that actually does really you know, uh, creative problem solving. And instead, we get really defensive Mm -hmm. or we run and hide. We end up choosing conflict styles like conflict avoidance or we just give in and roll over or we gear up to fight. And none of those are actually really helpful responses to conflict. So so it actually starts there. If I can let go of the fear of the person that I'm in conflict with or conflict in general, now I can start to see their humanity, see them as a person, see that their needs, wants, and desires are, are equally important, just as mine are. And we can actually start having a conversation about how we meet both your needs and my needs. And I think part of the fear of conflict is mm-hmm. that I think that either my needs aren't going to get met, um, which is totally unfair, uh, or that I can't meet the other person's needs because they're ridiculous or unfair, or again, you know, maybe they're, they're even scary or threatening to me. And I actually find that as we, we start there, 
then we can actually really get into great conversations. So I, I talk a lot about this in my, in my book, Dangerous Love, but there's this thing called turning first. And in that, that means that I'm going to be the first person in the relationship to instead of fighting or running away uh, from the conflict or just giving in, I'm going to engage the person, listen, learn, and really try to understand where they're coming from so I can see if it's possible for me to meet some of their needs. We're talking with Dr. Chad Ford uh, about uh, really sort of just resolving conflict, right? Being able to uh, to work, associate to facing the fear of conflict and being able to work through it rather than eliminating uh, conflict from our life or those people as a result. I would be curious because I don't think it's our nature to uh, turn first, to be empathetic, to you know, to look at what that other person needs or wants when we get in these kind of scenarios. Are there questions, um, things, practices that we can do if we are not in the habit of this at all that will help us to really be able to turn first? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And actually, it starts with a simple question that I ask myself, which is, is it possible that I'm part of the problem here? I actually think our natural instinct is to look externally at the problem and say, sure. <laughs> they're the problem, they need to change. I'm fine, change, yeah. Everything else will change and the conflict will go away. Of course, they're thinking the same thing. And that years as a mediator has, has taught me when people come into the room, the help that they want from me is actually helping me help them change another person. And that just typically doesn't really go well. And so if we can start with a question of, is it possible that I'm part of the problem here, then the, the next follow-up question is, is it possible that I could be part of the solution? Yeah. So we start there. And then the next question I call is the power of the seven whys. When people are doing things that we don't understand or that we disagree with or that we have problems with, asking why questions and really just trying to go deeper into understanding why are they taking that position or why are they behaving in that way or why is this important to them often open up a pathway forward instead of just assuming that we know the answers or jumping to quick conclusions or using stereotypes or what have you to inform ourselves about why they're acting the way that they're acting, asking a lot of questions without really responding to anything other than tell me more about that or help me understand a little bit more about that often opens us up to be able to see their humanity and see possibilities for solving problems that we just didn't see in the future. And I know these sound like really basic ideas, but you'd be shocked in conflict how often we don't even yeah. follow those simple practices. Well, because our brain um, shuts because down. Because we're afraid. Yeah, because yeah. Of, of that fear that you mentioned earlier. I'm curious if you could share with us a specific example about how you've been able to help others, maybe with your students or, or in, a, in a larger arena. Yeah, you know, one of, one of the stories that always sort of comes, uh, you mm -hmm. know, to mind to me was I, I work a lot uh, in, in the Middle East, and I was working with um, this, this young woman and a, and a group of other people who had started a nonprofit organization in her community, and uh, it, it was really about getting girls to be able to play sports. And, and often in, in Muslim communities, girls don't really have access to be able to play sports and what have you. And they thought it was really important. There's a lot of research that shows that when young, young women engage in sports, it has a ton of benefits, not only to their physical health, but their mental health and their social health and what have you. But she had a problem. There was only one gymnasium in her, in her town, and the man who owned the gym wouldn't let women play in the gymnasium. So she had this whole nonprofit mm. Uh, that was sort of built around getting women access to sport, but she couldn't actually get access to the facility hmm. um, that she needed to. And she was really frustrated. She actually went and asked at first, and then when he said no, she she started picketing him and, and trying to uh, turn the community against him, but all it really did was turn the community um, against her. And she'd come into this workshop with me, and her big question to me was, how this nonprofit's going to die. How in the world am I going to be able to get it to work when the, there's this person in my community that yeah. just won't let it happen? And we actually started down this question. What are you afraid of? Um, how do you see this person as a person? What, what are the reasons behind why he won't let women in, in the gymnasium? What's his backstory? Why did he build the gym in the first place? And the answer was she didn't know the answer to any of that. Mm -hmm. All she saw was this person that was in her way. And so she left the workshop with this, with this homework, which was, how do I actually go and help understand this person so that we can collaboratively solve this problem together? And she came up with this idea that the gym wasn't really making a lot of money. Uh, there was a lot of people that were constantly asking to be able to use the gym for free. And so she offered, along with her colleagues, to go and clean the gym at night for free. Um, to be able to get to know him. This he would allow women in the gym for, mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, but not to actually sort of play sports. But as she went every night and began cleaning the gym, she got to talk to him. She actually met his wife. They eventually were invited over uh, to their family for dinner. And when she got there, she saw a picture 
on a mantelpiece of his daughter um, in a basketball jersey. And she was stunned. How in the world does this man that doesn't allow women into the gym uh, have a picture of a daughter with a basketball jersey? And the more she found out, the more she found out that this man had actually built the gym for his daughter. He used to let women um, play, but after a while, uh, his daughter went to the United States. Uh, She quit um, sort of following the traditional Muslim ways. He blamed himself uh, for getting her involved in sport, and he sort of shut this down. And And the girls were able to actually broker a reconciliation with him and his daughter um, and ultimately allow them uh, and allow them to be able to go and use the gym. And you know, this wow. is just sort of a short story of just being curious, just trying to see the humanity of the person that we're in conflict with and often understanding that there are motivations and reasons behind the things that we do that we don't always understand early in conflict um, that can really help us find a way forward. What I love about that story is that it illustrates that this is possible because I think we yeah. all, just as we think that it, that uh, conflict is the other person's fault, I think we all think... I'll never get through this yeah, that, yeah, or pass sure, this issue. Sure, Dr. Mm-hmm. Ford, you've got a lot of great principles, but you don't know my yeah. scenario knowing that things like this are possible. Um our time with you has drawn short. Is there something around this particular topic that you feel like we haven't spoke to, spoken to that we need to? I think you actually, you said it. You know, so many people come to me and say, sure, sure, yeah, I know that you do mediation. I know you work in the Middle East. I know you work with Israelis and Palestinians, but you don't know my parents, or you don't know my brothers and sisters, <laughs> right. or you don't know my husband, or you don't know the people in my community, mm. and it won't work here. And, and of course, my answer to that is, is that if that's what you believe, then you're actually going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. That's actually going to be right. As long as you think it's not possible for us to collaborate and solve problems together, you won't. Uh, and, and so you'll be right. Being right has devastating consequences mm-hmm. to relationships um, and communities. And if we could just put that aside for a minute and say, maybe they won't change. Maybe that's true. But maybe I can change. And if I can change, maybe I give them a different person to react to in a way that will ultimately open them up to change. That is where real peace starts, and it's absolutely possible at home, uh, in our communities, and in the world. If you want to find more about Dr. Chad Ford and find his book, you can hop online to DangerousLoveBook.com. You can also follow Chad Michael Ford on Twitter uh, and also follow the book on Instagram at DangerousLoveBook. Dr. Chad Ford, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, one of the things that these two individuals are talking about, the whole thing is about like uh, marriage and couples and relationships. Uh, they're, they're not, yeah, they're not therapists, but they're just, they're two people who have found themselves both in the highest of highs and lowest of lows uh, within their marriage. And they talked about, uh, the idea of dating and constantly dating. So I felt like to take oh, this out a little bit further, sure. you know, whether we're single and looking to uh, to court someone or we're uh, dating and courting, but we're not yet married, dates mm-hmm. can occur. When we're married and maybe we're newly married, dates occur. Or we've been married for a real long time, uh, dates occur in all of those uh, sort of scenarios. So I want to give... A little uh, injection of uh, of a spark of creativity uh, with some summer date ideas. This this headline, oh. by the way, uh, not given by me, but by the great blogger whom I stole this from. Oh, cool. Worthy of a Nicholas Sparks novel is <laughs> is what these date ideas are. Okay, uh, I'll leave that part of the debate up for you. It's just really summer date ideas, and I feel like it is applicable at any age and any okay. stage of relationship. So. Here are just a few, and I'll go through them pretty quick, but to hopefully spur some creativity. Again, you don't even have to do any of these, but maybe it gives you an idea that goes, oh, you yeah. know what I should do? You know what I've I would love to do? i to do that. Yeah, that uh, kind of first stuff. one, grab dinner or drinks at a rooftop restaurant. Maybe yeah, in your think town. About your, I like that because it's like thinking about your surroundings a little bit more when you, we focus, <clears throat> like me, so much on the food, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like instead, focus on, on the scenery. Yeah, maybe the food isn't, to your point, isn't all that great, but the scenery is really yeah. great. You could watch the sunset, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, so a rooftop restaurant. How about this? I love this one. One of my first dates with my wife, uh, listening to music in the park. Oh, yeah, that's and, sweet. And you could do that in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. There are lots of parks that have like, uh, you know, the summertime either recitals or, you know, big concerts or those kind of things. That is a way to do it. But if maybe you have or your partner has peculiar musical tastes, you could set it up to where you go to the park and, you know, you spread out a blanket and then you bring because everything is chargeable and Bluetooth connectivity, 
You just set up and listen to the music that you want. Maybe you make a playlist. That's Mm -hmm. not on this, but you could make a playlist that says, I love you, or I want to date you, or what was your name again? (laughs) Depending on which (laughs) stage in dating you're at. You know, back in the day, it was a mixed tape, a great mixed cassette tape with a lot of meaning and and, uh, artwork done on the outside. It's not a lost art. Bring it back. I like this. I uh, I thought this was particularly interesting. It, the suggestion is go to a movie, but mm-hmm. diving deeper, uh, because I think we a lot of people, that's sort of the go-to, right? Mm-hmm. Dinner and a movie. Sure. Uh, but hit a matinee and then go walk around before or after and talk oh, about yeah. what you uh, what you took away from the movie. Like that. that Black Widow, that was sure a <laughs> lot of action in that film. I am very startled. Well, and especially if you're really into cinema and, and talking about the director and if it's true to the original script or story. Like, that can be a really great discussion point. And it, you know what it isn't? It's not just dinner and a movie. Yeah, and exactly. that's what the intention of all this. Uh, you'll go. You'll get real nerdy for this one. Mm-hmm. Visit a museum, especially oh, okay. now you're uh, with, my language. with museums now opening back up post-pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think that that can be really powerful. Or... To lean into the some of the things that were caused by the pandemic, if you are uh, with a partner that ha- loves to travel, would like to see places like the Louvre and other places like that, there is access online because those things were shut down. Uh, it's still available that you can be able to perhaps explore some things you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise mm-hmm. or in the past. So uh, another great uh, idea, cooking together. Oh, yeah. Go to the grocery store, pick out whatever it is, or a farmer's market. Uh, be able Ooh, to pick yeah. out those fresh things and just be like, what did you get? I got this. What did what you get? I got make? this. Let's make something from that. Uh, you could have a beach day if you're lucky enough to live around an ocean or a lake. Doesn't have to be anything more than just sitting by the water for me. <laughs> for me and right? my wife, honestly, we could really? just sit by the water. And be fine. And just it, the, for, the, the waves oh, it's so lapping relaxing. onto the shore. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I love that. Uh, a movie marathon. Uh, nothing wrong with watching movies, but maybe you take it to the next level and watch all of the Jurassic Parks or Back to the Futures or <laughs> Star Wars that. if you have two That's days cool. or Harry Potter's Harry <laughs> if you want to get into that. Uh, just taking a walk. Maybe you are not one that would be prone to, to just, you know, hold hand in hand and walk around the neighborhood. Or not, if you're not to the hand-holding part of a relationship, walk around the neighborhood. Walk around a, a different part of a different neighborhood mm-hmm. that you're not used to. Take a drive to a neighborhood and walk around. Um, you could uh, watch the sunset. We sort of talked about that with the uh, you know rooftop restaurant, but go to an intentional place with a great view of the sunset. Uh, it's unfortunate that the, a lot of the West is experiencing um, forest fires yeah. currently, but what it does make for is some pretty intense sunsets. I know. I felt kind of guilty the other night. I was outside with some friends and they said, oh, the sky looks so beautiful because of the pollution and smog and um, from the fires. But yeah. it's pretty. Should we take a picture? And yeah. then we just all felt really guilty. Uh, but, you know, it is it is in <laughs> fact what it is. Do your part as far as those things go, but maybe go watch the, the sunset. Uh, a, a thing that is interesting if you're early on in a relationship with someone, host a party together. Oh, you invite five friends. Move. You invite five friends, they invite five friends huh. and see what your friends are like and you can get a real quick idea of what that person is really oh, that's like. That's a good point. Uh, how about taking a pottery class? Oh, I would love that. Yeah, call Patrick Swayze or Demi Moore. Yeah. They'll give you the ideas about how the ceramic class might go. Well, basically, it's a ghost. Yeah. Well, I don't have that on this. Are you Just alluding, take a class. Are you alluding to some Just sort of movie or class. something? Uh, a, a class, uh, additionally, if not if pottery is not your thing, you know, these paint by number classes or they go and uh, they teach yeah. you how to do it or, you know, that kind of stuff. Brunch. We're going to get into some other things that you love here. Uh, consider a brunch <laughs> or a fancy dinner. Get all mm-hmm. dressed up and, you know, to oh, the yeah, nines, as my nice. grandpa always used to say. Go out to a fancy place. Maybe you've saved up for a little bit and you want to go do that. Uh, go shopping. Uh, this can be an interesting thing for a date yeah, where... I wouldn't think that people would like that. Well, I mean, it depends. It, this is for all sorts of folks. Okay. Uh, but like you go to maybe a flea market where or a secondhand store and, you know, I know your sizes, you know mine. Oh, yeah. I get to yeah. pick out what oh, you're going to wear and then we go do something mm-hmm. uh, wearing those clothes or it's a fashion show or, you know, whatever the thing may yeah. be. Uh, we've already mentioned the farmer's market. How about getting active? Just, you know, you go for a run, go for a jog, hit the gym. Maybe it'll be yeah. a way to help motivate you on some other goals that you have as a partnership, but being able to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Go bowling. We recently talked about bowling here on the Lisa Show. Yeah, I would. T- that's a great date activity. It's a way for you to not strike out. Ah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew. I could. I knew it was coming. I could not. I didn't I know which one. It. Okay. Uh, plan a night in. One of my best dates <laughs> I've ever done. 
sweatpants and a cozy sweatshirt in the wintertime and we watched Christmas movies. That was, I mean, obviously in the past, but uh, planning for that night in because you put so much pressure on what are we going to do? Yeah, where are we going to go? Oh, we want to make sure. Plan a night in. Spend a day poolside. Just right by the pool. Get yourself your favorite beverage. Maybe make the your uh, your partner their favorite beverage and just hang mm-hmm. out by the pool. What are we going to do today? This? Mm-hmm. Anything else? No, just this. <laughs> just spending the day poolside. Uh, couples massage. Those can be kind of fun. Uh, go to a concert. A lot of concerts are returning. A lot of these. That's like, great because there's a lot of downtime mm-hmm. waiting for the concert to happen. Mm-hmm. You can comment on other people in the audience mm-hmm. on the music. I love that you tried to couch that that way. <laughs> You can comment on other people in the audience. You mean, just... you mean people watch and call out people being weird. It's all right. Because at concerts, the people watching is so good. So it's great. So great. So fun. Uh, seeing a play, uh, whether a musical or a straight play, a great way to be able to go out and have an opportunity. Again, maybe thought provoking. Having a picnic. You can go to a wedding, hopefully one that you were invited to, but I know people who have done that. I don't know. That's high that. stakes. If you're just barely starting to date someone and you take them to a wedding, that's kind of a big deal. I'm leaning the other way. Go to a wedding that you okay. weren't invited to with someone that you just barely <laughs> okay. met and go, what do you think about this? Do you do see you think this it's for us? Last? <laughs> what would that's you do so differently? That's so uncomfortable. That's funny. Uh, I want you to know, it looks like it's a wedding for somebody else, but I actually brought you here for us. Go ahead. <laughs> if we're getting a two for one. Uh, bike riding. Something that as adults we sort of let go of. I know a lot of people, when they get back on a bike after years, they go, wait, I really like this. Why did I ever leave bike riding in my past? Yeah. Uh, travel somewhere together. Again, knowing the condition of or where you're at and within your relationship, but having the opportunity to jet off to another city or another mm-hmm. country or just a staycation. You drive away somewhere. Uh, maybe take that road. I know people have talked about here in Utah, Highway 12 is one. Route 66 is another one um, that people can do the... the uh, Pacific Coast Highway out in California, where you can drive some and then stay and be able to get great views and food and do some of all this. Uh, Just a couple more. Take a workout class together, something that you may not have ever done before, like a yoga, a hot yoga. Maybe you're doing, uh, I don't know, a Zumba class together. Take the opportunity, especially if neither of you have ever done it. It's a great way to just go and laugh (laughs) and enjoy with each other. And like learn it together because Mm -hmm. then I think you learn a lot about the other person, right? If you're (laughs) trying to get to know him a little bit better, understanding like what it could be like when you're learning a new skill. Very fun. And then finally, uh, take a cooking class. There's nothing Mm. like rolling up your sleeves. Would you do that? uh, Oh, yeah. I I, uh, I took a cooking class a couple of years ago uh, with my wife, and we learned how to make custards, frozen and otherwise, and, oh. lem- and lemon curds, and uh, it was it was great fun. Prove it. it. it Bring some lemon curd it, into the office. I still have some in the freezer from years. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> no, it, but it was a su- yeah? it was a super great time. How a lot cool. of community colleges have it, and even oh, like yeah. high school. Um, like it, continuing ed kind of stuff, uh-huh. you can go and do them. Typically, you're just kind of paying for the food. You get to be with other couples that are there kind of doing the same thing. And even if there aren't other couples there, it's just you and maybe a couple other random strangers. It's really fun to kind of learn a new skill aside your partner. And That's funny. And if it fails, you have a great story. And if it, and if it doesn't fail, it's a delicious success. <laughs> you can't lose. <laughs> <laughs>